And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So longtime listeners will know that one of my favorite topics to discuss is the UFO phenomenon. And while we've covered individual facets uh, of this, today we're going to look at more of a broad spectrum you know, view, a 50,000-foot perspective, if you will, because we've got Mark Hartzman on the show who just wrote a book called We Are Not Alone, which looks at a historical perspective, you know, beginning to end of how this phenomenon kind of really began, where it's going, where it is right now, specifically in the United States. But I think it's very important to look at all of this so that we can start stringing together some of these stories and get a much larger narrative on what's really going on in this country. Uh, so it's we got to get right to this. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know this is just doing this and learning about UFOs and aliens is probably a big deal. It's probably a big moment in your life. But I'm about to reveal a moment to you that might go down in your history as one of the greatest moments for you personally. And that is this is the second time you've been on the show. So you are officially a member of my two timers club. Uh, How does it feel to be given that news? I know it is sudden. Um, It's it's great news. I'm glad to be part of a prestigious club. It's always good. Sure, it's I'm in great company. Fantastic. So yeah, company. thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's I mean, this is this is a lot of fun. You know, on our previous episode, we talked about your lightweight juggling accomplishments, which uh, as far as for my money goes, that might be the greatest thing you've ever done. This book might be second, uh, but that's a pretty cool accomplishment to to tell me about something I've never heard of and that you're a, a world class champion at it. That's pretty cool. I'll let people listen to our other episode to get the full details. But are you still practicing that? Are you still up to date? You still, you know, keeping I, the rust off? I haven't. Uh... I haven't done any new records since we last spoke, so I still have, I think I have eight or nine that still stand. Okay, that's good. That's all right. Double digits. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's, it was a lot of, a lot of tiny objects. I have my <laughs> certificates, I think, over here somewhere. Well, if they're handy, I'd love to see them. Uh, if not, I won't pull you away. But, you know, I don't require that level of proof. You know, um, obviously, the things we're going to talk about today require much more proof than a simple certificate. Um, but for me, a certificate will do, Mark, and and, uh, and also your word as well. Uh, so you were just on Coast to Coast. I was, yeah. Which is really cool talking about your new book, We Are Not Alone. Uh, you and I are not alone. We are together here. Thank goodness for that. Um, but on Coast to Coast, you got to talk to George Knapp, who is like the UFO journalist that must have been a pretty exciting interview. I mean, just a cool experience for you to have. Yeah, I was first of all, I was thrilled that he liked the book, had me on the show and was very complimentary about the book. So to me, that was that was great to hear him be uh, excited about the book. Obviously, he's probably read a ton of them and has been part of many of them himself, uh, written his own. So I was really thrilled that he enjoyed the book and appreciated what was in there. And it was, yeah, it was great to talk to him. It was a lot of fun to do that interview. That's like the audience for this book. 
Oh, yeah. Way. I mean, <laughs> there isn't really, I mean, you know, not only is it the largest overnight, you know, late night talk show, but uh, on radio anyway, uh, but it's like, that's all they talk about is UFOs is like 90% of, you know, what they talk about. So it's definitely a <laughs> targeted audience. I always love the callers yeah. too, the call in, because you never know what you're going to get. You don't, you know, and I have to say, you know, I mean, now it's much more corporate, but the days when Art Bell would just pick up the phone, you just you just called his house, basically. And he was like, hey, it's art. You know, there's no screeners. I mean, I love that. Just going in raw, baby, you know, just going in, you know, that's the that's the Wild West. That's a rodeo, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, nope, would, sure. Wouldn't you have liked that? Wouldn't you have liked to get calls from people who you, you don't know what's you don't know what's going on? Well, I mean, a lot of it is that feeling that a lot of people want to just share something, you know, sure. and maybe yeah. there's a question attached to it, but sometimes they're just sharing something. There was one guy this time that I thought was was quite interesting because he shared an experience. He had a UFO sighting he had in North Carolina, I think in the mid 80s. And it sounded very and he asked me if I'd heard anything like this. It was very similar to a story I wrote about in We Are Not Alone um, that a friend of mine had witnessed, Lee Spiegel. Witnessed in the mid 70s in Lumberton, North Carolina. It was a triangular shaped UFO that he was with a police chief. He was sent down to North Carolina by J. Allen Hynek to investigate. And they drove around, they followed reports, and eventually they saw it. They pulled up the side of the road, they saw this giant triangular UFO. And uh, it was silent. It was just hovering there about treetop level high, shot a beam of light down at my friend's feet. Wow. And, and then took off. And there were other witnesses there as well. And it was one that was never explained. He checked with the local Air Force bases. Mm-hmm. Did all the research to see if there was something being tested, a pilot going by, whatever it might be. Is there something else going on? Mm-hmm. And really got no answers as to anything happening that may have explained it. So this guy seemed to have a similar experience about 10 years later, which I thought was was actually pretty interesting. I mean, the level of consistency with a lot of these stories is what really intrigues me. You know, I mean, they're, they can all be put into baskets and groups. But within those baskets, the stories are are very, very similar. Uh, but before we get into that, you know, uh, I have to ask you uh, on that Coast to Coast interview and our previous interview, you know, you mentioned this, but you haven't gone into taking a deep dive in this. And I really want to know why I'm going to put your feet to the fire on this one, Mark. You know, uh, you interviewed Robert Van Winkle, better known as Vanilla Ice, on his tour bus about aliens. Uh, this did not appear in your book. I haven't heard you mention it publicly. What did the two of you discuss and why are you being so secretive about it? I did. Yeah, I interviewed Vanilla Ice. Gosh, that must have been around 1999, 1998, something like that. That's what my research uh, shows. It's Yeah, it's been, been a while. Uh, it was right outside of Tramps in New York City. If anyone here used to go to shows at Tramps, it was a pretty great venue. Uh-huh. Long on at this point. Mm-hmm. And got to sit in this tour bus. My friend was managing him at the time. That's that's okay. kind of how I got access to it. Okay, him. all right. Well, you didn't just wander in off the street. You had a connection. No, no. Yeah, he, right. you know, we Actually, we hung out with uh, Vanilla Ice for a little bit before a show. We had to run to uh, Dwayne Reed to pick up some weird stuff he needed for the show for some performance stuff. Okay. Random memory. And then we got on the tour bus, and we just—I was just interviewing him for the zine I did. It was called Backwash. I think I have a copy right over here, actually. I can oh, the Vanilla that. Ice one? Yeah. Oh my! God, you want me to amazing. step over here and grab it? I would love that. Well, you know, I'll keep talking while you do that. I mean, this hey, is. Hang on one sec. You—you you got it. While you, you while you grab that, you know, Vanilla Ice was—he's formative years for me. I mean, I remember him. 
uh, Ice Ice Baby. Uh, that song really hit the charts. And the argument with him in Under Pressure, I think. Oh, there it is. Here's going to just a little bit to the right. <laughs> the right. Uh, there we go. Look at that. Uh, yeah. So it's, oh, backwash. It looks like balkwash, like um, balk, back-wash. like in yeah. baseball. That was but, the zine. Wow. You have it there. Yeah. Did he There's, sign it? Um, no, no. But, but there's. There it is. That's that's me. I photoshopped um, some goofy face <laughs> in Afro myself. Wow, that's that a is, heck of an Afro. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I did that. I was just, just uh, you know, it was in my early 20s. Um, that's fantastic. But yeah, he, he's, I don't remember how the aliens actually came up. He just started talking about it. Let me see if I can find a quick uh, excerpt on it. But he started talking about how he believed that, you know, we were all aliens, that we came here, mm-hmm. that aliens came here and basically, you know, settled on earth and that's why we're here today which was you know it was rather interesting actually what he was talking about he was very into it here we go here's a pull quote we were not even on this planet the first human bone fragment was found after the ice age which was when the meteorites hit the planet um, so he kind of went in a lot of early history let me see here why are we aliens oh he said okay i said do you believe in aliens he said yes i do i believe we are aliens i've taken a lot of slack for that why are we aliens? I said, why? Because of the facts. Forget the rumors. Forget everything you've heard. Forget what the Bible says. Look at the facts. Listen to this. Fact number one, simple as a pimple. That's him. Uh, <laughs> okay. Millions of years ago, dinosaurs roamed this planet. Neanderthal man was the first human bone found. Not one human bone fragment found anywhere in the entire dinosaur period all the way up until they're extinct. We did not exist in there. We were not even on this planet for the first look. So that's what I just read. So where do we come from? Simple as a pimple. That's a fact. It's not fiction. It's not a rumor. It's not theory. It's a fact. We were not here. And I believe if you look at how far we came in 100 years, 100 years ago, we didn't even have cars. 50 years ago, we didn't have television. Imagine if we came from a planet that was right now 4 million years from right now. If we took us, if we took us where we are right now, we would still be, and we were still existing 4 million years from now, what would we be able to accomplish? We're already traveling to the moon. Mars will be nothing. We'll be going to moons for lunch, space stations for traveling at the speed of light, four million years. Anyway, he went on and on. <laughs> I was I expected more rhymes. Simple as a pimple is probably something we should you, we should be saying more often. But you know what yeah, I love about the, <laughs> right? Yeah. But this is you know the, it shows just how ubiquitous this belief is. Right, everyone. You know, from celebrities to the common man. I mean, uh, there's there's some. I went on a walk with someone on a hike. I haven't I hadn't talked to them, you know, in close to a decade. Was catching up, and throughout the the, the run of the conversation, learned that this person had seen a UFO when when she was just a kid. I, I mean, this type of stuff it, it's everywhere, you know, and and it's mysterious, it's unexplained, and it's it's bizarre, right? Yeah. So, and I'm curious. Like, where do you like, what was the purpose of this book? You know, was it something you were exploring? Because in in, after finishing it, it feels like a really like a retrospective in some ways. It's kind of like a brief history of UFOs in like 250 pages. Right. Was that what you were going for? Were you looking to do new research or were you just trying to get a handle on what was already out there? Um, I kind of like the idea that it is a a brief history, but I think fairly comprehensive. Mm hmm. And I mean, for me, it's just something I've been fascinated in, even before talking to Vanilla Ice about it. You know, I've, mm, I've liked sure. this topic since I was a kid. And I touched on it a little bit in my book, The Big Book of Mars, um, and wanted to just really dive into it a lot more because there's just so there's so much. And it's such a fascinating topic. So part of it was getting into the history, um, but also really giving like 
I said, a, a broad spectrum of thoughts and perspectives. And I, I don't think that there's another book that shows that covers as much material in terms of the different kinds of people. And so, and, and, you know, here's the book, We're Not Alone. Mm-hmm. And I talked to, I mentioned my friend Lee Spiegel had the experience in North Carolina. So I, sp- I spoke to various experiencers, people who'd seen UFOs, people who claimed to have been abducted by UFOs. I cover the contactees in the 1950s who mm-hmm. said they met Venusians and flew in their spaceships. And at the same time, I spoke with people at NASA and, and within the science community about their efforts to find extraterrestrial intelligence in the universe, what they think about, you know, finding biosignatures, technosignatures on exoplanets, um, whether or not they could be coming here or not, and then getting into the current day um, exploration with UAPs and the government's involvement and ex- admittance of, of admission of the idea that we don't know what's in our airspace, which to me is crazy. So it kind of shows you how we get from one place to another, um, again, with a lot of different perspectives. And I, I thought that was just a unique way to present all the material. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, you just kind of briefly mentioned that. Was Vanilla Ice the first person you talked to about UFOs? So, I mean, did he spark that interest? I mean, I, I didn't catch You said it. But I didn't make that connection. Oh to no! You. I mean, I was I liked this topic before Vanilla Ice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, right. before I speaking with Vanilla Ice, he may have liked it before I did. Right. Because he's older than me. <laughs> right. The time. Well, to get the <laughs> timeline right to see who liked it yeah. first, which is extraordinarily important here. Like when I was a kid, I had those mysteries of the unknown books, you know, from yeah. Time Life with the UFOs, and yeah. I bought Whitley Strieber's Communion when I was, you know, a teenager. So like, I I've been fascinated for a long time. Oh wow! Okay, so you you I go with one myself though. So, okay, that's a great question. I was just going to ask. Um, so you, you, this is one of those things where you are just an observer. You are the fly on the wall, collecting yeah. research, talking to people, other people who've, who have observed. But you have never, no, nothing? I mean, at all? No, haven't really seen anything. I mean, the closest I had to seeing something was actually during my research. <laughs> okay. Um, I went to Albuquerque. And I met there with uh, a guy who has this amazing collection, which is now called the National UFO Historical Records Center, um, mm-hmm. David Marler. And so he lives outside Albuquerque. And from there, I went on to Roswell to continue research there. But, you know, being in New Mexico, I was staying at an Airbnb place, kind of remote. So it was, you know, beautiful open sky, not much light. I just wanted to sort of take it in, look at the stars when I got there. It was like 10 o'clock at night. So I'm standing there, I just kind of look up at the stars, it's beautiful, and I see something like as small as the stars, you know, just a little tiny yeah. dot in the sky. Yeah. But it's zipping around like this. Really? And I'm rubbing my eyes thinking like, what, what am I seeing here? <laughs> right, like, like a cartoon weird. character, yeah. Anyway, I don't think a satellite moves that way. It's yeah. just like all over the place. Um, you know, like a mosquito or something, like a uh, something flying up there. So I had no idea what that was, if it was my eyes or what was going on. But everything else was still hmm. it was just this one thing that was moving around somewhere. And it was weird that that was happening in New Mexico where there have been so many sightings and so many events. So I don't know. That's the only thing that I ever saw that, you know, puzzled me a little bit. But certainly nothing like a big triangle floating you know, treetop level and shooting beams of light at me. Nothing, <laughs> right. nothing. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's very, very different experience. Did you by any? Ch- I actually recently had. Um, I had a, a strange sighting. It, it is about. It's very similar to yours, but I remember I was looking. This happened just a couple weeks ago. When I was looking in the sky, and I remember seeing this small, like light moving, and it was. It was. This is in Los Angeles. A lot of light pollution, right? And it was moving in a straight path. 
and then just suddenly disappeared. It just suddenly like phased out of existence. And I remember I watched this guy for the next 20 minutes to see if it would reappear. Just disappeared, moving at a speed of, you know, satellites are hard to see here, you know, but it was one of those things where, you know, I watch a, a lot of TV shows like this, like Skinwalker Ranch. You know, that's another question. You know, when you see when they have the, you know, spaceships that they see, that's kind of or uh, now, I'm, now I'm speculating when they see objects in the sky, some of them do fade in and out of existence like that. Interesting. I don't know what it is. You know, could be any could be a satellite that went behind, you know, some kind of interference. But uh, did you you know, Skinwalker Ranch is one of these places that has gone throughout history. You know, George, I believe George Knapp um, and uh, uh, Combe Kelleher wrote a book called the Skinwalker. I forget what the name of the book is. Something Skinwalker Ranch. They got a TV show, you know, recently changed hands. Did you make any attempts to go there or talk to, you know, Robert Bigelow or to um, uh, Brandon Fugel, who currently owns it, or any of the people there? I did not make an attempt to visit. I did reach out to Colm Kelleher, and I did not hear back from him. Uh, Same <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we have that in common. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I was. It would have been great to get some original quotes from him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I tried reaching out. I think I tried connecting with with Robert Bigelow as well, but that also went nowhere. Um, so I mostly pulled from you know old accounts, newspaper accounts, and going back to I think the seventies or eighties, I found some great quotes about the original owners of Skinwalker Ranch oh, yeah. and what they were experiencing. And then I did I did reference um, George Knapp's book. Uh, which is he's got a couple on on Skinwalker Ranch. I have one of them behind me. I think Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Mm, yeah, I think that's what that yeah. one was. Um, just to kind of pull a few of the experiences that they had. Um, so I, I covered it somewhat briefly in yeah. the book. I didn't get too far into Skinwalker because that's it's a bit of a rabbit hole. Yeah, that, um, you know, could go down pretty far. I like it because it was studied by the U.S. government. There's lots of things that are classified, and also it's. You know, you've got intelligence officers coming out saying, like, we don't know what this was. And there's such a, a large spectrum of things that happened. You know, I'm surprised. I don't know if you, did, you didn't re- reach out to Brandon Fugel. Was he not responsive? I, I did not reach out to him. Oh, he's the current owner there, Mark. You know, you're talking to guys who owned it like 30 yeah, years I, ago. And I referenced it. I did reference that. But um, I just I didn't dive too deep into Skinwalker. All right. Fair I, enough. I, I got I got into it more in terms of its. uh how it related to the OSAP program. Yeah, some right. Of the early studies and some of the funding going towards looking into that, which was interesting because they're looking for UFOs, but you start getting into all these other weird things. And you're trying to yeah, you know, equate it with something more serious about UAPs and does it start to muddy the water a little bit just mm-hmm. in terms of content matter? I don't know. It's, it's sort of interesting in that way as well. Yeah, it could be a whole different – it's a whole it's a whole different world. Um you know, it's funny because I, I, I like to pride myself in having a pretty diverse range of topics on this show. But, you know, while reading your book, uh, I realized that I was going through like the Hartsman checklist, you know, as you talked about Roswell. I was like, oh, I did an episode on Roswell. Oh, I did an episode on Battle of Los Angeles. Oh, I did an episode on Betty and Barney Hill, Stanton Friedman, Linda Moulton Howe, uh, Jackie Gleason, Nixon UFO encounter. You know, th- <laughs> not, not, this isn't just me. You know, of course, I love self-promotion in any way I can get it in here. But what I realized is that I have a fascination with this. And I was go- kind of felt like I was going along with you on your journey as you were learning about this, because you start at Roswell. And to me, Roswell is like one of the best stories. Right. And I think what struck me and I kind of want to get your thoughts on this, both when it comes to UFO disclosure, right, I, I think given all the stuff going on now, we're probably closer than we've ever been. 
But the ramifications of that, in true disclosure that, yes, aliens are here. We have their technology. They've been visiting for years, centuries, decades, whatever it is, has a couple of ramifications. Number one, the ripple effect into history where for the past 80 years, oh, no, this hasn't been happening. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, all of it was happening. Changes Everything almost changes modern human history. You know, if you're like, oh, yeah, by the way, Roswell was a down crash. That's a pretty serious allegation. And then disclosure going forward, which is, well, now as president or, you know, leader of the free world, what do we do when we admit that there are things coming in here that we can't explain, that are a threat to national security, that we can't do anything about? How does that affect your population going forward? So there are a lot of ramifications here, which I think you kind of discuss, but I'm curious what your stance is on disclosure and its effects both forward and backwards through time. Well, certainly if they ever admitted that Roswell really was a crashed spacecraft and that we have remnants or bodies or whatever picked up, I mean, to me, that that would be absolutely incredible, you know, to see that evidence. Mm-hmm. And it would make you question everything, right? Everything yeah. that you've heard about other UFO stories. Of course, then the other question is, is where are they from? Are they from different places? Are there multiple species, multiple plants involved? Is it one? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of questions, right? It would also make you wonder, like, is there any truth to the idea that, you know, did we gain knowledge from them? Is that where some of these, you know, some a lot of people believe, like the vanilla ice quote, actually, mm-hmm. um, that our, you know, rapid advancement in the past 100 years or 50 years, 75 years was due to alien technology that was given yeah. to us. That's where some of those conspiracies with Eisenhower come in, all these things. Yeah, yeah. So if that were actually true, I don't know, that would be incredible. What else don't we know? What else could we be getting from, from these beings? Yeah. Um, that said, none of that could be true, but that doesn't mean that something else isn't happening now. Right. right? So let's just say that, yeah, none of that really was aliens, but that's not to say that UAPs being seen now are not. Yes. They very well may be. And again, what I find so fascinating right now is that the stigma is is gone away more or less, right? Like mm-hmm. it's pretty much gone. And that I think you can kind of trace back to the 27, uh, 2017 New York Times article where suddenly it was taken somewhat seriously again. Right. Yeah. And yeah. you had Will Azano coming out and Christopher Mellon, uh, who are all, you know, both of whom I spoke to and are, you know, discussed in the book, um, releasing these videos from the Navy pilots. And all of a sudden you have these incredibly incredible. Uh, witnesses, right? Like these are guys who are saying that all I know is I saw something that I can't explain and we're seeing them a lot and other Navy pilots are saying the same thing and they're feeling more comfortable with reporting these things now, which in the past they weren't. So to me, that's good. And then the other thing I love is I spoke with Avi Loeb and talked about his Galileo project. So with all this happening, at the same time, you've got this brilliant scientist who's got credibility, um, accessibility to equipment and funding to actually look into this and actually gather his own data. And he's got uh, other scientists supporting him, like 100 scientists with the, uh, with the Galileo project. That wouldn't have happened before. They would have been afraid to touch it. And you wonder what would have happened if the stigma wasn't there and they had touched it 50, 60, 70 years ago, what we might know now. But the fact that they're finally gathering data leads me to think that we may actually start to learn something in the near future, uh, which is exciting. Between that, where they're kind of looking more close in, and then you've got things like the James Webb Telescope and its successor, which will launch in a decade or two, um, which can teach us a lot about exoplanets. Yeah. So we may, if we don't find out if something's coming here, mm-hmm. we may soon find out with real data that something is alive somewhere else, which I think would be 
really exciting. So, yeah. I mean, those are all, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, you talk about all these different organizations. Uh, 2017 probably was the hallmark. And I have to say one of the, you know, in a world, in a world, in a field where strange things are the norm, right? And so to say this is the weirdest thing, you get a lot of like, well, I know something weirder. I have to say that I think the strangest thing going on right now is that Tom DeLong of Blink-182 is probably responsible and maybe responsible for the future of Alien Disclosure. Uh, you don't really talk about the Scars Stars Academy. Lou Elizondo is a part of that. Hal Putoff, who was previously of, you know, the... Um, uh, SS, uh, SRI uh, with um, with Russell Targ and doing remote viewing, you know, so he's put together quite a group and he's re- I think yeah. I believe they were responsible for, you know, getting those videos put out. So at the very least, he started the 2017 conversation, which is, you know, going forward, rippling effect forward now. But Tom DeLong, Blink-182, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who'd have thunk it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is odd. Actually, I, he was someone else I reached out to, but didn't hear back from. It would have been great to speak with him. Um, but I got more of the story through, I guess, Christopher Mellon's perspective. Yeah. Uh, who really felt like he was the driving force behind getting all that information out. Mm-hmm. But I think what will be interesting to see, and, and I have a quote from Seth Shostak in the book, um, who's one of the head scientists at SETI. And, you know, he talks about like, OK, well, let's just say we do get disclosure that aliens are visiting or that they exist, that we have evidence that there's other creatures out there. And he was like, well, how, how many people will actually feel affected by that? They'll be like, oh, okay. They'll go back to their jobs the next day and just kind of carry on with their lives. And you kind of got to wonder like, yeah, how many people will actually pay attention or feel affected or will they just, you know, get back to their routine yeah. of their lives as they are? And the other thing I have to wonder too is, Actually, I was just talking with um, Paul Hynek the other night, who's J.L. and Hynek's son, starting on a new book already. Future guest on the show, by the way, hopefully next year. He's great. He's awesome. So um, we were talking about the fact that like back in you know, Roswell times, right, if you saw video footage, he was talking about like Walter Cronkite. Like if he was reporting on something, like if UFOs did land on the White House lawn and Walter Cronkite's reporting on it, like, well, there you go. It, we all would believe it, right? We'd watch it and we'd say, this is what's happening. And now that we have all this new technology to help us actually detect these things, and maybe we actually do find it, or we get footage somewhere or somehow, there's so much technology that people would probably not believe it because technology exists to fake it all as well. So so if we had the real thing, how many people would actually believe it if they saw it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is the real catch-22, right? But I mean, you know, if you're if you're a government trying to cover things up, what better tools to muddy the waters? I mean, that's always been the argument for the past, at, you know, at least for the past since the 70s, that the whole idea is to stir up mud and give half-truths and partial truths. And, you know, Roswell's a great example. You know, that happened, and it was a blip on the radar for three days and then went away yeah. until Stanton Friedman was like, well, hold on a second, in the 70s. Exactly uncovered it, you know, and Tom Carey, you know, I did a whole episode with Tom Carey and he interviewed like 600 people involved with the Roswell incident. And as you read his book, it's strange. It's like cutting cameras because it's like, 
You're talking to the guy who, you know, was there, uh, you know, on site. And then the guy who drove the plane that took the crash debris. And I mean, so you're seeing it from every angle and you're like, wow, all these stories line up. This is bananas, you know. Um, and and I think that at those times, you know, and you're t- dealing with people's memories. There's no, you know, th- there, there aren't pictures of this stuff. Right. And now with pictures, you as you're right, you would think that that would give people the definitive answer. But we can fake stuff all the time. I mean, I use an, an AI generator to make images, and it's unbelievable the quality of images that they make. You know, uh, so so you're right, and it's you know it's a it's a plus and a minus. Uh, I will say, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting. I want to talk about this Charles Davis story that you had because it's one of the most unique stories, and and I think. One of the things that's cool about this is this is very well-trodden territory and finding new stories is very unique. So I want to talk about that. But but I want to start with, start as we, you know, we're hitting the 30-minute mark, start with, uh, you know, where did the modern UFO movement begin? And I think, it, I used to think it was Roswell, but I think this actually probably goes back to War of the Worlds, the 1930. I think it was 39, uh, 38 broadcast, uh, Orson Welles, Mercury Theater. And there was this belief that there was mass panic uh, after the War of the Worlds interview. And I'm going to put an article up that Slate did back in 2013, which basically debunks that whole thing and saying that no one was really listening to the program, but the radio was a very um, was coming into play and was going to usurp newspapers as the dominant news medium being immediate. So newspapers started slandering and saying, oh, well, radio is giving misinformation. Yeah, same stuff, right? It's happening today. Radio is giving misinformation. You know, look at what they did. They scared thousands, millions of people, you know, their deaths and all that. And the truth is that's probably not correct. The War of the Worlds broadcast didn't have any real societal impact the way that they said it did. But what it did do is because of those newspapers, people then started to believe that there was an actual there could be an alien threat or. And I, so my, my contention is that things really began there because it's shortly after that where we really start to see UFO phenomenon creep into the lexicon. What do you think about that? Well, a few things. I think um, the article you're referencing, I, I'm pretty sure I know that one. I, I discussed that. I, I actually remember from a podcast. Um, which may have been connected to it because I wrote about that in the big book of Mars. Oh, okay. And, and so I covered that whole angle on it with the advertising and, and the radio thinking that, mm-hmm. you know, newspapers trying to screw up a radio because it was a new medium, all these things. So you're right. There was sort of that belief that that may have been what, what was going on. I don't completely buy that. There was no listenership that was actually freaked out. There's too much, I think, evidence that shows that there were a lot of concerned people. I mean, it, I wrote about one guy that had a heart attack and died from listening to it. I don't think that was a made-up story in these papers, especially across the country in all different cities. Sure. It would be quite a coordinated attack um, mm-hmm. in my mind. But what I actually find fascinating about the War of the Worlds episode, that was October 30th, 1938. 38, yeah. So first of all, people tuned in late to that broadcast. Um, do, do you know? Do you know why they tuned in late? I do know why, Mark. Uh, because Edgar Bergen, uh, Edgar Bergen, had a very popular show. When it was over, I believe that was at the hour mark, and they were already had started the Mercury Theater play. People were switching dials. At least that's yeah. That's the what what is said. Yeah, exactly. And and Edgar Bergen had Charlie McCarthy. He was a ventriloquist. Yeah. If anyone knows, 
aware of that. So I, I love the fact that the ventriloquist was popular on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get that. <laughs> yeah, okay. that's really funny. I mean, are, they all could have been ventriloquists. That's really funny. I didn't think about yeah. that. Yeah. Right. That's really <laughs> so, funny. It was 1938. Mm -hmm. Okay. Different time. Different time. But what I actually find really fascinating. So anyway, so they missed the beginning where Orson Welles says this is a dramatization, all these things. And the way he did it was so brilliantly done. You know, with the band being interrupted and the news reports coming in, you had World War II brewing overseas already. So emergency interruptions were not terribly uncommon. There was a little bit of paranoia going on. But beyond that, and I talked a lot about this in the Big Book of Mars and a little bit in this in this book as well. We are not alone. But for decades, newspapers were reporting about our, uh, you know, contacting intelligent Martians any day now. And this was because people like Nikola Tesla mm -hmm. firmly believed in this mm -hmm. and believed he was contacted in, in 1899. Mm -hmm. um, Marconi believed he received a signal in 1920. You had people like David Todd at Amherst in 1909 who ascended in a hot air balloon 50,000 feet to receive Martian signals. Mm -hmm. This was a common belief mm -hmm. that there was intelligent life there and they were trying to reach us or we could try to reach them. Of course, none of these things worked out because they weren't there. But this was there, there were tons of headlines about this. So in my mind, 1938, putting that in perspective, if you've been reading for decades in papers like the New York Times, you know, respected newspapers that we might be contacting Martians or they might be coming here, and then you hear that re that recording or the the broadcast that Wells was doing, it was so realistic. You know, you may have thought like, oh my God, they're finally here. This is actually happening. And I, it, you've been kind of primed to to think that this could happen. So it's not shocking to me that that all ended up happening. What is shocking is that it happened again 11 years later in Ecuador. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you knew about that one. But no, I didn't. Tell me about that. I, before, yeah, they, before, before you tell that story, I have to say something that's very important here is, you know, Nikolai Tesla believed he was contacted by aliens in 1899. And it was 100 years later that you spoke with Vanilla Ice about the same topic. So uh, before <laughs> we before we continue, I wanted to make that point. But please tell me about uh, No, I, I, I think it's. That Salient. may have been the first time that Vanilla Ice and Nikola Tesla were on the same side. So, I like that. It was, it's, it's, it was due. It was, uh, it's about time that that comparison yeah, was made. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, just quickly, but yeah, Aikido Ecuador, two DJs to drum up some publicity for their station, thought, oh, let's do the same thing that Wells did. But they didn't say anything about the dramatization. Mm. They localized it to their area, okay. as mm. Wells had done. And, uh, and it was a disaster. They, all the all the police ran to the neighboring village to try to fight the Martians. Um, <laughs> now, did this really happen? This is confirmed. This isn't. This, yeah, yeah, okay, this okay, happened. Okay. Fifteen people died during wow. this event. Jeez. They uh, they rioted in the streets when they found out the truth. They went down the radio station. They set it on fire. The <laughs> the God. fire trucks could not get there in time because of the mobs in front, and then fifteen people actually died. So, wow. anyway, back to your question though. Yeah. Um, so these, this idea of extraterrestrial life and intelligence was certainly around for a long time. It was nothing new in, by Roswell, right? Mm -hmm. I, the way I kind of start the book, to me, like the modern UFO starts to me with like the, the birth of the term flying saucer, which was just weeks before Roswell, in June 24th, 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. Mm -hmm. And not to say that was the first you know, flying saucer sign. They were Foo Fighters in the early 40s and World War II. There was the Battle of LA in 42. So... Again, unusual things being cited around World War II era. But yeah, Kenneth Arnold saw these nine flying disks over Mount Rainier in Washington, didn't know what they were, found it very odd and, and unlike anything he'd experienced before. And the term flying saucers was actually coined by a, a reporter who heard him say that they were like skipping across like saucers over, uh, you know, the lake or something. Mm -hmm. So 
flying saucers enters the lexicon. Our skies have never been the same. Sure. And then <laughs> the next day you had people people from all across the country reporting mm-hmm. seeing flying saucers. For in the weeks that followed, obviously then Roswell hits, they say, you know, the government says that they actually found retrieved a flying disc. I showed the newspaper headline in the book, but to actually say we covered a flying disc, I think is what they called it, is is pretty amazing. And ultimately, of course, they said that was a cover-up for Project Mogul, which was a high-altitude um, spy balloon to, to you know look out over Moscow. A flying disc-shaped weather balloon, I believe, is uh, what we're meant to believe. Yeah. Well, yeah. when weather balloons get to that elevation, they do become disc-shaped. Oh, I guess. Well, I don't know the physics up there. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, Not when it lands, though. Out. Yeah, but when, when you recover it, that's on Earth. So it would come yeah. back to the same size. So if they say they, re- they didn't recover it by flying up to grab it. Well, they recovered the pieces. Yeah. Shattered. Sure. In a disc shape. I see where you stand on. I see where you stand on this, you government <laughs> shill. Um, so, so this is interesting. So I, I am curious, before you started this research, where did you stand on this topic and where did your research bring you? So it's a good question. I mean, I I, I came into this very open minded and I remain very open minded. Um, I was actually doing a, a talk with the Planetary Society a few days ago, and I was telling them how the way I've felt going through this book is, is on one shoulder I have scientists who I've spoken to, and on the other shoulder I have the ufologists and, and the experiencers and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you hear their stories, and they are amazing stories, and especially when there's no explanation. Um, I, I like the example I gave early on about my friend Lee with the North Carolina uh, incident because he's someone I know. Yeah. And to me, it, it was very different hearing that from someone I know mm-hmm. uh, versus like where I'm reading in other books or pulling up old newspaper clippings right. or someone that, you know, very stories out there in the world. Yeah. I know this guy. I don't believe this is someone who makes up things. You know, he has held on to the story since 19, I think it was 70, 76, if I remember correctly. So he, this was what he experienced. And I don't doubt that he experienced something very unusual. Um, I think he saw what he saw, you know, don't see why he'd make it up. So it's hard to like discount that, you know, like this is that this has a lot of holds a lot of weight to me. At the same time, you know, I've got the scientists on the other side who talk about the fact like, well, we don't have enough data. Um, science takes time, we takes time to get answers if people want answers right away. So when they see something they don't know, they jump to a conclusion because they need an answer. Mm-hmm. And that's usually the conclusion. And that there's some sense to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we may you know, science may find new answers as time goes on. One of the uh, examples I got was from Jill Tarter, who is uh, started the study program. Um, she, if anyone saw the movie Contact with Jodie Foster, yeah, Jodie Foster's character is based on Jill Tarter. She was, okay. you know, new Carl Sagan mm-hmm. who wrote Contact, um, so they were very close, and and he based it on her. Mm-hmm. But she talked about, for example, pilots used to report seeing unusual objects above the clouds, you know, these flashes of light or whatever that they couldn't explain. No one knew what these things were. And then they discovered at some point they were called, um, I think they called sprites and elves. They're basically lightning that shoots up from clouds. Right. I didn't know any of this before. Mm-hmm. This was like something new they learned in physics. And all of a sudden there was an explanation for what pilots were seeing that they couldn't identify. And she said, then those sightings went away. So are there other aspects of physics we haven't learned yet that may ultimately explain some of the sightings that people have had? And, and maybe, and and I find that interesting, but that might cover a portion, but maybe not all. 
you know, that might give us a few answers, but it doesn't explain everything necessarily. But maybe other things eventually will. Um, who's to say? So I, I kind of, it kind of keeps me balanced hearing the scientific perspective, but also keeping the curious open mind because of the other stories I'm hearing from people I know and people I don't think are making anything up. So anyway, it's kind of a long-winded answer, but I, I love the mystery and I love the, you know, staying open-minded about what's to come. Sure. Um, when is your campaign start? Because that sounded like a political speech here, Mark. Where do you stand? You believe in them or do you not? Where do, where, where do you go with this? Put your feet to the fire here. This isn't some, you're not on the stump walking around in the Ohio, Iowa caucus. Where do you stand with these? I think there's something out there. All right. I just hope that uh, I hope we have a actual proof mm-hmm. in the near future because I'd love to know for sure. What would be, I think pr- be what would be proof be for you? What would be, what would be like? What would you obviously, um, you know, a shattered disc that's actually a balloon that's round and then small. Uh, you, you have your questions about that. But what about what would you what would it really take? Would you have to be abducted yourself? Would you require um, actual evidence? I, I, look, I'm in the same camp you are. I'm not trying to give you. Any, I'm not asking you any question I wouldn't ask myself. But I'm curious, what level of proof would you need to say 100% we're being visited? Well, certainly, you know, evidence would be great. Evidence that we can't dispute, you know, which I, I realize is not necessarily well, like the such as day, like but, example. Like, would you need, you know, um, a Martian? A Martian? Jeez, listen to me. Would you need like an extraterrestrial footprint? Would you need? Um, Pieces of of a craft? Would you need a, a handshake? You know, um, a fist bump. I think if you saw, like, yeah, if we found pieces of a craft. I mean, you've heard about these um, comments from David Grush recently mm-hmm. with Congress saying that we have retrieved spacecraft and bodies. Let's see it. I would love to see that. That would be incredible. Um, if we saw that, I think that's that's great proof. On the other hand, I think seeing evidence on exoplanets that there's life there that to me would be amazing evidence again of something else existing in our either in our galaxy or within the universe so i think those would be amazing findings um i'd be happy with either i think you know technology is weird right so i do a whole nother podcast where i talk about pop culture science right and and when you start talking about the capabilities of technology you realize that you know if you were to give a cell phone to someone even in the 1800s or the 1700s, not only would they not know what to do with it, there's no way that they could even figure out how it works, you know? And and I think that that type of evidence where you have technology, like if you had a downed craft, the fact that you can't reverse engineer it makes sense to me, but also like what, you, you wouldn't even know what to do with it, you know? And, and I think technology is the key. And when it comes to sp- travel, there might be a technology out there that can warp space and time where you can find things that are, you know, hundreds, thousands of light years away, bend space and time. And now they're right next to each other. I'm not going to go into all the details on how that works. That's for another show. But I'm saying that these types of advanced technology would make the seemingly impossible possible. Why I'm saying that is, you know, you're saying you look out into the stars. Like, well, we can only see so far. And what what may be visiting could be in a different dimension. You know, I mean, I've heard those arguments as well. I'm not sure where I stand with them, but I did a whole episode with a, um, a guy named uh, John Dover, who was uh, a, a ranger on the Navajo Nation. And he was he and his partner were assigned some of these more incredible. They're like the X-Files of the Navajo Nation. And some of the things that he talks about, you know, he's, he was also on Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. The idea that it's multiple dimensions, being able to traverse dimensions, that level of technology we may think is impossible, but that would make 
things have that mysterious air to it that would be difficult to to prove and difficult to believe, given that we don't have anywhere close to that level of technology. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very true. I mean, first of all, another dimension could mean that they've been right here with us all along. Could be here right now. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, it's an interesting perspective. I mean, I actually talk a little bit about that in the book as well. Lou Elizondo talked about that to some degree. Mm -hmm. This idea of, you know, when were microorganisms discovered, right? Like at some point we had no idea that there were more creatures on this planet than than humans mm-hmm. right below our feet like right. underground right. there's more life than above ground right yeah yeah um that was unknown for most of humanity right uh so who's to say there's not something else that we've yet to discover i mean i find that fascinating as well um and then yes the idea of aliens having the technology to bend space time all these things again if you look at how far we've come in 100 years well, who's to say if someone else exists that they're not a million years ahead of us? Or like that—that that goes back to vanilla ISIS comment, right? Um, <laughs> but but that it makes a lot of sense. Like, hey, if someone developed long before us and their civilization has lasted much longer, of course they would be much further ahead. So of course they would know things that we can't even imagine right now. And you, like you said, you can look at our own existence and see how that's quite possible. We wouldn't know what to do with a cell phone a hundred years ago, or would have ever believed that that could even happen. Yeah. So there's definitely that argument to be made. Um, which again, keeps the wonder alive, right? Keeps the mystery going. Who are we to say? We're such a tiny blip in the timeline of history that that who knows what else was here 5 billion years ago and came and went, you know, like, which, which is part of, I think what's cool about Avi Loeb looking for he calls it like alien archeology. span Like, why are we looking for someone else that's existing right now? Look and see what they may have left behind and what can we learn from that as well? So it's another Good way to look at it. Yeah, exoarchaeology would be very interesting once we once we're able to get to other planets. If we could actually find other civilizations, uh, that's uh, you know the Indiana Jones of the interplanetary Indiana Jones. Uh, you know, yeah, I got it first. Stay out of that. Stay out of my business, Hollywood. Don't be stealing that one. <laughs> uh, so I want to get to this. You know, I want to get to the story that you talk about with Charles Davis. This is a bizarre story. It's one I've never heard. It's one he's never told. How did you, so I want to hear the story and I want to know how did you get a hold, like how did you find this guy? Where did you hear the story and why has he kept it quiet for so long? So this was, this was really a very unique story. Mm-hmm. So when I, I mentioned I was in Albuquerque early on researching the book mm-hmm. and when I was working at David Marler's archive, I told him I was going to Roswell. I think I was there Saturday and Sunday with David and driving to Roswell Monday. He said, oh, you know, I, I met this guy who's living in Roswell now, you should try and talk to him. He's living in Roswell, had this amazing experience, but never talks to anyone about it. No one even realizes he's there. And he reached out to him for me and said, hey, would you meet with with uh, my friend Mark? He's driving there you know, Monday, and he'd love to talk to you about this new book he's doing. So Charles agreed with that, which was great. And David had basically found some articles about this guy from 1964. He was in Hobbs, New Mexico, eight years old mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And he was in his playing outside of his grandmother's laundromat in the parking lot. And he sees this top shaped object flying like just kind of across the street, about treetop level high again, or like, you know, height of the building that was there. And as he's moving left, it moves left. As he moves right, it moves right. So it's kind of mimicking his movements. And then all of a sudden it just shoots over to him right above his head, belches out fire and burns him from the chin up. His grandmother stepped out and saw the whole thing. She, and then it took off. 
So his head gets burnt, and he, you know, he's rushed to the hospital. Fortunately, there's a burn specialist there. They treat him right away. It's investigated by the FBI. It's written up in the newspapers. The FBI finds no explanation at all for what caused this. They're, you know, checking the ground. They're, they're, you know, things on the ground that would give evidence. Did any of the equipment at the laundromat cause this? Some malfunction that spit fire out that may have done it. They, they see nothing that explains this, but the kid's been burned and the grandmother saw it. Now, did the grandmother see the top? Did she see the entire incident? Yeah, I think she saw the whole thing happen. So she Once also conf- came over. So she also confirms this UFO. Yeah, as I recall. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so they had, you know, some of the media obviously covering the story at that time. And then they just kept it quiet. He just wanted to get back to his life and they didn't want to be harassed by it or anything. And four years later, they were contacted by James McDonald. He was a physicist who was investigating the UFO phenomena. And so they, so he interviewed Charles, the grandmother, and the mother. And I have recordings of that, that that David shared with me. And then Charles just didn't speak of it again until a few years ago when he spoke to David. And then he spoke to me. So basically wow. talked about three times since 1968. And we had lunch at a restaurant in Roswell. He shared a bunch of this with me. Um and in his mind, he said, like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what it was. It may have been aliens. It may not have been. I don't know. I just know something weird happened. And that's where he left it at. And he didn't want to never try to capitalize on it. He just wanted to put it on the shelf in the back of his head, he said, and get on with his life. So he wasn't looking to, you know, make money from this thing that happened to him. But what was so interesting was that when David was researching this, he started uncovering these other stories uh, that were happening in the month or so before and the months after 1964 of other top-shaped UFO sightings, mostly in Georgia and North Carolina, that also belched out fire. Mm-hmm. And they were always on Tuesday nights. Yeah. And it was so <laughs> frequent on Tuesdays that even newspaper articles talked about people having their watch parties on Tuesdays for this top-shaped UFO. And no explanation ever for this thing. Like, what the hell was this thing? Yeah. Was it like a weird government project? If so, why is it burning little kids, you know? Yeah, right. Um, nothing. And then it just went away, and that's it. So I love that having that story in the intro of the book, because to me, it just sets up the whole weirdness and unusualness of this topic, that there's just so many odd stories and so many unknowns that remain today. And that was just one good example. Well, it also strikes me at just how, you know, I mean, our government is put in place to protect us from, you know, threats, domestic and foreign and domestic. Right. And if you've got, I mean, you know, for, almost a hundred years, 90 years, you've got, if not longer, you've got things flying, you know, with, with impunity in our airspace. That that's the fact that no one is addressing that. And you know, the, the thing I mentioned earlier about disclosure, uh, that was an article written by Christopher Mellon uh, just this week, I'll put it on the website, but it's that whole idea of national threat. The national security threat is really what we people should be looking at. And what you're talking about is a phenomenon that wasn't one person. We're not talking about just a grandmother and his and her granddaughter, you know, grandson who who knows, right? You know, we have to trust their word, but that many people, it was reported so much so that people had watch parties for an object that appeared in the sky and burned people, you know, like napalm style. You know, this is, you know, like uh uh Vietnam, you know. I mean, this is that's crazy that it just goes away. That says to me the government doesn't address this at all or any sort of defense agency doesn't address this. That's weird. 
And that's I think that yeah. should stand out to people is that those types of stories they're not so clearly they are being addressed because there's no way that our military wouldn't address it. They're just not being addressed publicly, and you have to ask why. Yeah, well, and and you're right. That was the big point Christopher Melman was making to me, and and I cover a lot of, a lot of great quotes from him in the book. Yeah, because that was that's how we got it through to the to the media and to the Congress was it's a matter of national offense. How is it that we don't know what's in our airspace? That's that is a crazy thought, right? Like, what's going to happen if it what if it is a foreign adversary? We're not paying attention to it. We're not preparing for it. If it is an alien uh, civilization coming in some way, I mean, to me, that's the better news because we're still here. It means that they're not looking to, you know, at least they haven't wiped us out yet. Um, so that I think that's a good sign. Sure, but it is. It's, it yeah. really is. That that's how you get them to take it seriously. Is because it truly is a matter of national defense. Like yeah. if you're not paying attention to something. And uh, earlier this year was such a great example of that. In February, remember in February they shot down the Chinese spy balloon. Yeah, of course. And then over the next week they had three, and the the press called them UFOs. Three other incursions. Shot down. Yeah. Because and they don't know what they are. They were not Chinese spy balloons. They don't know what they were. Um, I suppose maybe they could have been, but they never identified the other three. They So they didn't. I thought there were reports that they were other types of balloon. They were foreign adversary, if not Chinese. I, I don't think they ever, because they shot them down. They couldn't recover them. Okay. They were like lost in like remote Alaska and somewhere. And they they basically gave up the search for them. It just kind of went away. But, they, but they're like finding stuff that are, you know, could be uh, dangerous to pilots, commercial pilots flying because of the altitude that they were at. But also, like, what what are they? I think that there were some theories that they may have been, uh, like, hobbyists putting up various weather balloons or something like that. They may have been. So there's certainly some theories. But they never said, here's what we shot down. Here's what it is. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's suspicious. Although I think that those probably have a more mundane, earthly explanation. I mean, the fact that yeah. we can hit them is probably evidence that they're not extraterrestrial. Um, yeah, I don't true. I don't know. I mean, the Roswell, it's my favorite incident. I know it's old. It's an older incident. But, you know, the whole idea was that either it was radar or lightning struck or it was it was we didn't bring down whatever crashed at Roswell. It just crashed. And that seems more in line with, you know, any of these crash retrieval ideas. And even, you know, uh, Dave Grush talks about it in the in the congressional hearing that we have been retrieving, you know, downed craft for decades and that we have them that seems more in line so my point is if we can bring it down it's probably terrestrial true if i if, I, I would agree with if that I, yeah. if i had to guess but but again the fact that they're, they're finally paying attention yeah. and finding things to bring down what else is up there yeah <laughs> yeah know? yeah it shouldn't be. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting because there was this great quote again in that, that article about Ronald Reagan. And it's this, you know, it's basically, you know, he talks about how, you know, the, the enemy of our enemy is our friend, you know, wait, the friend of our, wait, hold on. I'm not saying that correctly, but if two people have, um, a, have the same enemy, they can then align as a united force. So am I saying that correctly too? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that that's really interesting because when you look at these congressional hearings, these modern ones, the I mean, there's been no more. I'm sure right around the Civil War, you could say that we've had a more divisive political system. But it's we have a lot of extremists and it's only getting more polarized in our political system. And no other place did you see all of those extremists on the exact same panel was when they were talking about the committee for UFOs. I mean, if you go down the list, it is far right, far left on the panel asking questions about UFOs. 
that kind of tells you everything you need to know if you're even watching politics right now. Yeah, it makes you wish that some UFOs would come down and straighten us all out. Is that what it makes you wish? <laughs> Bring us together. <laughs> That's what Reagan said. Like yeah. we'd all come together as yeah. humanity, you know, and and uh, deal with it together. And yeah, it, uh, he's right. You think that would solve our? Do you think that would? Is that the guide? Is that the the true ticket? The world peace is having aliens land and say, you know, kind of like the day the Earth stood still, and just come out and greet us. It, it might be our best hope. You think so? <laughs> I, I mean, it ain't going so well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, what else do we have? You know, it's it's as great of a dart throw as anything anything that we've got. Uh, well, you know, this is this is a great book, yeah, Mark. I mean, you've done an incredible job. Uh, the book is called "We Are Not Alone." You want to throw it up there for uh, uh, for anyone yeah. watching on YouTube. We are not alone. Available now. I'm assuming. Uh, Look at that. He's going through yeah. these beautiful Build. pages. Uh, no mention with images. of yeah. Robert Van Winkle, but it's still a great book nonetheless. Um, it's great pictures in that. Uh, so where can people find it? Where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, the book's available really wherever you buy books. You can go to Amazon, Barnes Noble, bookshop.org, your local bookstore. Um, you can go to my website, markhartsmanbooks.com. It's Mark, M-A-R-C-H-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N, books.com. And you'll see my other books there as well. But yeah. Really, wherever you buy it or wherever you buy books, you should be able to find uh, We Are Not Alone. And that's the typical Zeta Reticuli spelling of Mark Hartzman, isn't it? <laughs> that's how I spelled there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mark with a C. Yeah, Mark with a C. I think so. It's only rare on this planet. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's common. It's common throughout the galaxy. Very, uh, yeah. And of course, you know, I've got, I'm going to have all your information. Oh, you know what? Let me go. Hold on. Do you uh, Twitter, Facebook, social media? Did you mention that? Oh, yeah. Uh, on Twitter, I'm just at Mark Hartzman. On Instagram, at Mark Hartsman as well. Okay, great. And I'll make sure to put all that up on the website. Our website, fascinatingnouns.com, is where you find all that. Of course, we're streaming on uh, all the major podcast platforms, and you can find the video version of this if you're listening to it on fascinatingnouns.com as well, youtube.com forward slash Daniel J. Glenn. And we are on social media, Facebook, at Fascinating Nouns, and on X, formerly Twitter, at Fascinating Noun. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, Mark. I mean, there's no, there's no topic I like talking more about the UFOs. And what's great about this is we can kind of talk about everything. Um, you know, previous discussions were very, very focused. But, you know, getting the, the you need the full picture. And I think you gave it, gave it to everyone, Mark. Uh, so great job Thank with you. the book. And, you know, thanks for being on the show and, and thanks for writing it. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me back on. I'm so glad you liked it. Absolutely. And of course, I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. 
It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.